All right, I'm going to start off. I'm going to take advantage of this time uh, before we get teaching. So Curtis mentioned, it's true that we, we try to plan out our teaching six months in advance. And it's alarming in a good way how often things align. And several months ago, uh, our team was meeting and we were asking the question, what do, what do people need to be reminded of? What do people need to hear? And it was very heavily impressed on my heart and a few of others that we needed to teach people about the spiritual world. That we do so much practical, you know, but following God is not meant to be therapeutic. He's not a therapist. He's the creator of the universe. And we need to know about a spiritual world. And so we had planned out this series, and little did we know that uh, I, I'm not sure what's happening across our nation, but little did we know that something would begin to bubble up. Uh, if you haven't become aware, there are revivals breaking out all over the country, uh, particularly at universities. Uh, if you have not gone to see the Jesus Revolution, uh, go see it. Listen, if you can't afford a ticket, come see me after. I'll buy your ticket to go see Jesus Revolution. Uh, it's a phenomenal movie. It's creating conversations. Uh, just a lot of things. I could connect the dots for you. And this last Sunday, we began a series on strongholds and how to break them down to be a part of the movement of God. And the six that we're talking about are not just general, because there's lots of strongholds. We've got, uh, maybe even in this room, we've got pornography or addiction or uh, anger. It could be a number of different strongholds. But the ones that we're talking through are the six that prevent the church from being a part of the movement of God. And I'm just so very excited. It's, I've been in a very humbled place over the last couple of weeks, paying attention to what's going on and knowing how God is moving. And I'm hoping and praying perhaps God is, is inviting Getwell to be a part of that. So I hope you want to be a part of that too. And I'm gonna, uh, something I'm going to speak to this uh, week is that if you do want to be a part of it, God only asks two things of us. And that's prayer and repentance. And let's prepare our heart for that. Lord, I want you to do what only you can do. And God, I need forgiveness. I need to change direction to join with you. All right, so that's just a total aside of what is on my heart right now. But I am going to talk about marriage because the only thing uh, that equals my passion for leading the church is helping men to succeed in their relationships and particularly in their marriage. And I know some of you uh, are not yet married, and I would highly encourage you to pay attention because you can get it right from the start. Uh, some of you are no longer married, and I would say to you that some of the things we're going to talk about apply to really every relationship. Now, some are unique to marriage, but some will help you in every relationship. So what I'm going to seek to do is I'm going to give you kind of a little taste of uh, the first quarter of an eight-week session that I do, and I'll probably do it again in the fall if you're uh, interested in more. Uh, I'm not going to go into uh, the depths that I normally would, but I want to kind of give you a little bit of a foundation. And I want to start off by uh, talking about the, the purpose of marriage, but I want to give you some, some biblical insight on the creation of the world and creation of marriage. As you look at the way that God created in the beginning, 
there are some things that are present in the first creation that will not be present in the new creation and that's revealed to us in the revelation of John. Well, what am I talking about? Well, there's some obvious ones like uh, the, in the book of Revelation, we're told that there will be no more darkness. In the book of Revelation, we're told that there will be no more seas. It begs the question, did God make a mistake the first time? Well, of course not, right? God doesn't make mistakes. That everything in the first creation was there on purpose and with purpose. And just to cut to the end of this, and if you want to hear more about it, uh, I'm teaching a insight on March the 27th, that Monday night, on creation. And we're going to go into depth on this. But to get to the punchline is that there are some things that are present in the first creation that were there because God anticipated sin. And those things that were present in the first creation that are not present in the new creation are part of God's redemptive work for that sin. For example, we'll take the, the presence of darkness. Why did God create darkness? The reason was is he's given us a way to imagine and understand the power of evil and sin. Why did God create seas? Well, if you're a good Jewish person, uh, centuries ago, the sea was representative of chaos and death. God was giving us a way to understand the problem of death. Well, one of the other things that's present in the new creation, the first creation that's not present in the new creation, is this relationship of marriage. Jesus says in the Gospels, you don't understand that in heaven we'll neither be married or, or, or given away or not. Like, that's not a part of God's plan because we'll be like the angels in that respect. So it begs the question, why did God create marriage? Because God was anticipating the problem of sin and marriage is a part of God's redemptive work for the problem of sin. Which needs to take us back to this question. It's a fundamental question I ask every single person I ever go through premarital counseling with, and it's why do you want to get married? Or for those of us in this room, why did you get married? And for most of us, the answer has some, you know, if I asked all of you, you'd have different versions of this one response. But most of us would say in some fashion, I got married to be happy. Right? And it may have had to do with sex. It may have had to do with friendship. It may have had to do with companionship. It may have had to do with family or security or it's the next step or I don't want to be lonely, or whatever that might be. But for all of us, it would have some kind of shape to it of, I want to be happy. Well, the foundation of marriage is we understand that it was given to us in anticipation of the problem of sin so that it be a part of the redemptive work of God is that marriage was not intended to make you happy. Marriage is intended to make you holy. And we have to begin in that place if we're going to handle marriage in a proper way. Most of the problems that we face in our marriages are because we're looking to our wife to make us happy when God wants to use her to make us holy. So let's look at this creation of, sin, of, of marriage. So God, he creates everything in how many days? Six, right? That's teed up for you. That's not a, a trick question. Six days. On the sixth day, God creates man. He reaches down and he creates him from the dust of the earth. 
And for six days, God has said, it is good. He creates something and he says, it's good. And he gets to the end and he says, oh, this is very good. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, he looks at man and he says, it is not good that she, he should be alone. So I'll create a helper for him. And I love this part of the story. You need to have a sense of humor as you read scripture because I promise you God has a, a sense of humor. If you don't believe that, just tell God what you're not going to do. So he looks and he says, well, I'm going to bring a helper. And so he starts to bring people or creatures from the animal kingdom for Adam to name them to see if there'd be a suitable helper for him. Like, can you imagine this? Like, all right, Adam, we're going to find a partner for you. And Adam's like, I didn't know I needed a partner. I thought me and you were doing good. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Because Adam doesn't yet anticipate the problem of sin. He doesn't know that God needs to bring someone who will be a part of the redemptive work for sin. And so I'm going to bring you a helper. And so, you know, he brings a giraffe. And Adam's like, okay, that's a giraffe. Uh, but that's not the one. It's too tall. Right? And then he brings him a lion. And Adam's like, that's a lion. And God, that is definitely not the one. Like, that is too ferocious. You know, uh, God brings a hippo, and Adam's like, I don't know, that's a hippo, hippopotamus, but that's not the one, God. It's too um, cranky. And he brings all these. Now, is God really trying to figure out what to do for Adam? Of course not. What's he doing? He's about to give Adam the greatest gift of all creation, the culmination of creation, and he wants Adam to be able to wrestle with the weight of that gift. And so then he brings Adam to a, a place of deep sleep. And we could talk about a little aside of why did God put Adam to sleep? I mean, this is not anesthesia. God can do anything God wants to do. He could have taken that rib from Adam without pain if he wanted to. Now, a larger picture of this is everything in the creation account is an anticipation of sin and it's setting the stage for the redemptive story for Adam and all humanity. What's really happening here is it's a likening to death. Adam goes to sleep and he's going to be given a gift of life on the other side. And so he, he's put to sleep and from his side comes woman. And this great response of Adam is, oh, finally, Right? Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You know, I, I can, you know, the kind of joke is Adam goes, whoa, man. Here she is. And he receives this gift. And then we see the purpose of God's gift at the end of Genesis chapter 2, where it tells us that the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. And that word naked, it's a double meaning in the Hebrew. It does mean to be without covering but it literally means to be exposed in every way. That Adam and Eve knew one another in every way. And I would go so far as to bet a paycheck that those of you who are married, you and your spouse do not know each other in every way. There are certain little thoughts that Feelings that are not shared with one another. And the good news is you probably shouldn't share those with each other. We need to filter what comes through here. But we don't know each other in every way. And sometimes when we do know each other in certain ways, it's accompanied by shame. But Adam and Eve knew one another without shame. 
But the problem is, is what happens next, right? And I'll fast forward through Genesis chapter 3 when sin enters the picture. And there's three responses of Adam and Eve that are attacking every one of our marriages as fear, shame, and blame. They, sin enters the picture, and the first thing that enters is fear. Adam and Eve run. And fear is dominating many of our relationships, especially for those of us as men. You know, this muchacho act kind of thing is our attempt to cover the problem of fear. And many of us, to deal with that problem of fear, we either become aggressive or we become passive. We become super aggressive and it's all about our job, it's all about our hobby, it's all about our opinion, it's all about our way, or we become an angry man and we become this super aggressive person to deal with this problem of fear because we don't want to deal with it. Or we go to the other direction and we don't want to make any decisions because we're fearful of making a wrong decision. We don't want to have any responsibility because we're fearful of dealing with that and we just, we just cave. And some of us in this room might be the passive man where the wife runs the house. And I'm not talking about you, you're supposed to dominate, but we don't even have a partnership because we become the passive man with, because of fear. So, so many of us, it's the problem of fear. Uh, it might be the problem of shame. That uh, I've got a secret sin, an addiction. Maybe I'm wrestling with pornography. Or maybe I've had significant failure in my life. Or maybe something was done to me or said to me or not done or not said. Maybe my father wasn't present or whatever it might be. And we have this problem of shame that says I'm not enough. And so we don't allow ourselves to be known. We don't take risks because we don't feel like we're worthy. Or maybe it's the problem of blame. And what happens with uh, Adam and Eve, they run, then they, they cover themselves. That's the shame. And then God says, what happened? Because you are running and you are covered with these fig leaves, which I th think is hilarious because God knows that's nowhere going to be enough to cover the problem of their shame. In fact, the very thing, next thing that God has to do is to perform the first animal sacrifice before the Levitical law is even given because it requires the shedding of blood to cover our shame. But the very next thing, God says, what happened? And God says to Adam, what happened? And he says, well, it was the woman you gave me. God, me and you, we were bros. We were good. Everything was fine. And then you had this big idea to bring this woman. Uh, if you had not done that, if she wasn't here, we'd be fine. It's the woman's fault. So he looks to Eve. What did you do? It was the serpent, by, which, by the way, God, you created that deceived me. And they, they shift blame. And many of us as men are shifting blame. Rather than taking responsibility, we have this victim mindset of circumstances or people or situations or events or lack of things that, that we become this, well, I don't have that, so I can't do this. And what's worse, those of us are fathers, whether it comes out of your mouth or not, we're teaching our sons and daughters to be victims as well. And so we got this big problem of fear, shame, and blame. But the good news is that God anticipated that, and God wants to redeem us through this relationship of marriage. And so he has some purposes that he wants to bring about through our, our marriage. One is he, he has the purpose of relationship, that through our marriage, 
if we're willing to risk pursuing our wife and risk uh, knowing her and being known by her, that we can have this love between two people that's not based on a contract that I'll do for you if you do for me, but it's a covenant that I'm in no matter what, that we can experience an unconditional love that is the only thing that really likens to the love that God has for us. When you say I'm in it for good no matter what, that's the only thing that ever comes close to having a relationship like we have with God. And as a matter of fact, I would challenge you men to understand this one fact is that you are in a position to love your wife like no other person on planet earth. On the one hand, don't waste that. But on the other hand, what an amazing gift. What an amazing adventure it is for God to give to you and say, I am trusting you and only you to love my daughter, this woman who I'm giving to you, so that she can have a better understanding of my love for her. Don't waste that. Another thing that God wants to do as he, through our marriage relationship is he wants to refine us. Uh, show of hands, uh, those of you who are married, how many of you have at least one thing about your wife that drives you crazy? Right? If you're married and you're not raising your hand, you're lying. And I don't even know why. She's not here. <laughs> but here's a lesson that I learned about that. As I, I was not doing what a husband should do, and I was kind of complaining one day years ago. And I've, I've grown up. I don't do that anymore. But I was complaining to a friend of mine about some things I was, I was frustrated about. And he said, oh, well, you need to just get over that. Like, why would that bother you? And I'm thinking, like, what? You're an idiot. Like, that bothers everybody. Like, what, what's wrong with you? And then it clicked with me. Like, it really didn't bother him at all. And I realized, you know what? There are things about his wife that bother him that would never bother me. There are things about your wife that bother you that would never bother me. And you know why that is? It's because our deepest frustrations in our relationships are directly correlated to our deepest wounds in our hearts. I'll give you one quick example. So I've kind of grown up really my whole life into my adulthood uh, with fear of, of not having enough financially. You know, and there's been some, some dumb decisions and some bad circumstances in my life that kind of created some financial hardship from time to time. And it's kind of like planted this fear of, of not having enough. And my wife, Jessie, God bless her, like she just has the opposite of the Midas touch. Like, like she washes a load of clothes and the washing machine breaks. Or like she takes the car and like the transmission goes out. Or like, you know, whatever. And it's like by no, like she's not doing anything wrong. It just, you know, circumstance. And I would get so frustrated. And, and it was illogical. And I was like, you know, why do you keep breaking stuff? And I finally realized that God was allowing it to happen in her hands instead of mine because he needed to deal with my fear of not having enough. And that that was directly correlated to my deepest wound. And there are, there are other things that I won't share with you because that's it's private. And that was a pretty benign example. But those have, you have those in your life too. The things that frustrate you deeply about your wife that really aren't about her, it's about what God wants to do in your heart. He wants to refine us. And then he wants to redirect us. And this is where I want to really hone in on 
that God wants to redirect where we are looking for our life's purpose and meaning, for our, our security and safety and significance in God. Because when we get married, and I think this is the most ironic thing of all relationships, is that when we get married, most of us, we marry this beautiful woman that we fall in love with, and we somehow buy into this lie that the feminine heart is going to give me masculine strength. And we look to this woman to make me a man. And we do it in all kinds of ways. We do it in housemaking, we do it in our sexual lives, we do it in parenting, we do it in our financial world, we do it in our friendships, where I need this woman to make me more of a man. Well, I'm just going to give you a, a little hint that the feminine heart cannot give you masculine strength. And vice versa. Right? Your masculine heart cannot give her feminine beauty. But we married this woman thinking that she's going to make us a man. And so we dump a whole bunch of needs on her. And the, what we need to realize is that most women are smarter than us. And while we don't even realize that we're dumping these needs on her, she's acutely aware that we are dumping these needs on her. And she's also acutely aware that she cannot fulfill those needs. And so we're putting all this pressure on her to succeed in a way that she's never going to be able to succeed. And then we're surprised when our wife shuts down. That she won't engage in that conversation or she won't reciprocate affection or she won't uh, go along with what you're asking her to go along because you're putting this thing on her that she can never live up to. And specifically, we tend to put two needs on our wives, and it's two needs that every human being has. It's the need for safety and the need for significance. I need to know my world is okay, and I need to know my life matters. And we put these, these needs on her that make me okay, deal with my insecurity, give me purpose, make me feel like a man, and she can't do it. And so God wants to redirect us and take those needs and put them back on him. Because while your wife can never prevent sickness or that job loss or that catastrophe, while your wife can never give your life purpose or meaning or significance, God can. God can carry you through the deepest of valleys. He can give your life direction and a target and purpose because he made you. And we need to take those needs and give them back to God and say, I'm going to stop treating her as if she's my God and realize who my God is and let you be that. And then along with those needs, we've got something called desires. And those desires, we're left wondering, what do I do with these? And these are the things that make life more fulfilling and, and more enjoyable. And we, we take those desires, and just like we do with the needs, rather than dumping them on her, even though she can meet some of those desires, instead we're going to take those desires and we're going to pray to God, and I'm going to say, Lord, would you work in her heart that she would want to meet the desires? Because here's what's going to happen if you don't do that. You're going to take all those desires, you're going to dump on, on her, and even if she fulfills some of those desires, your best case scenario is a parent-child relationship. Because I'm enforcing my desires on you that I want you to obey these requests of meeting my desires rather than knowing I'm an equal partner with you. We're submitting to one another 
And I'm praying that you have a heart to want to do these things. And God, give me a heart to want to meet her desires. Because if you don't do that, the other option is to manipulate. And when I ask about manipulation, most people say, well, I'm not, I don't think I manipulate until I define manipulation. And manipulation is just simply giving or withholding anything to get what you want. I bet every one of us in this room are manipulators, especially in marriage. We give or we withhold from our, our wife to get what we want in return. We can't, listen, that, that will never get you into a partnership, a union, a that Genesis 2, they were naked and not ashamed. And so we're going to lay that down. God, you meet my desire, my needs. God, I'm going to pray for you to work in her heart to meet my desires. And in the meantime, I'm going to minister to her instead of manipulate. Meaning I'm going to love her unconditionally with action, without looking for something in response every single day. And I'm going to let you work out the rest. I'm going to minister to her heart rather than trying to get something back. And God helped me to do that. You know, and so it's waking up every morning and it's making that choice when you wake up and she's got bedhead and she's got morning breath and she was, you know, frustrating the day before or you just had a fight. You're going to wake up and say, I don't feel it, but I choose to love her today. I'm going to minister to, to her desires. I'm going to minister to her heart. I'm going to pursue her regardless of she responds. I'm going to be kind to her even if she's not. I'm going to be empathetic and compassionate even if she doesn't understand me. I'm going to speak her love language even if she it comes from the farthest thing from speaking my love language. I'm going to minister to her heart. You know, most of us, you think that when you got married, like you just like, I fell in love. You remember that commercial years ago where the woman's like, I've fallen and I can't get up, the alert thing? That's kind of how we treat marriage. Like, I'm just walking along, and somebody dug a pit in the ground, and I fall in. I'm like, help, I fell in love. I can't get out. Like, that's not love. Love is that I choose to put you first. And here's what we have to do to be able to do that, is you've got to be able to deal with the problem of pride. Every single one of us had the problem of pride. Uh, I think Hunter's going to preach on pride in a couple of weeks. And here's the problem with pride, is that it blinds us. And because it blinds us, it opens us up to a number of maladies and sins and, and difficulties. Because we're blinded, we just let them come right on into our heart. We've got to deal with the problem of pride. And just real quickly, how do you diagnose pride? Pride is the condition of your heart when there's one of two things happening. Either you see the whole world is centered on you. Which means just simply like when anything happens in my world, I'm the first person I think about. Something happens at work, I'm the first person I think about. Something happens in my marriage, I'm the first person I think about. Something happens in my finances or with my kids or my family or my parents, I'm the first person I think about. That's pride. Or, or it might be both, or you might say, well, I deserve. You owe me. Or the inverse, I don't deserve that. You, I don't, you don't owe me that. Well, guys, we don't deserve anything but we've been given everything in Christ. And I don't have time to go through it, but go read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. It says, have the mind of Christ who, though he was God, did not hold on to his rights as God, but he laid them down. And when we, like Christ, lay ourselves down, we will be lifted up, not in the same position as Christ, but we have an inheritance of Christ if we submit to him. Like we, we get what God gives, the Father gives to Christ. We inherit the same thing that Christ gets by faith. 
And God, and Second Peter says that if we humble ourselves, or First Peter, if we humble ourselves, God will lift us up at the right time. And so I've got to come to my wife, not insisting on what I think I deserve, but lay it down. Now, tangibly, what does that look like? I'm going to wrap up real quickly with this. As I say, Lord, work on the pride in me. Humble me. Because, listen, you will either ask God to humble you or he will humble you on his own. That's a fact. So, Lord, humble me. Help me to love this woman you've given me well. Well, What does that look like? Ephesians 5 kind of gives us a blueprint of what that looks like. And in Ephesians 5, 21, it's the most important verse of the whole thing. You know, contrary to common belief, the, the, it's not the most important that the wife submit. <laughs> That's far from it. No, the most important verse is 521. Love one another out of reverence for Christ. Not out of reverence for each other. If you love your wife out of reverence for her, she's going to let you down. You want to experience guaranteed disappointment, expect perfection. We don't love our wives out of reverence for each other. Now, real quick story. So, Early on in my marriage, Jess and I were struggling mightily. And I was like, I've got to fix this. Like, I've screwed this up. I've been arrogant. I've been prideful. I've been selfish. I've got to show her that I love her. And I knew that one thing that she hated was dirty dishes in the sink. Well, she was working, making a living while I was going to seminary. And so she was off at work, and I came home early. And I started washing up all the dishes. And I thought, while I'm at it, I'm just going to clean the counters. And then I got kind of carried away. And I cleaned the whole kitchen, and I cooked dinner. And she came home. And I had it all laid out on the table, and everything was spotless. And I'm just kind of like leaning up against the wall like, she's going to realize how good she's got it. Right? Like that she, she has got herself a man right, who's willing to clean the kitchen, cook some dinner. You know, she's going to realize. She comes in, and she had a bad day at work. She goes right past me, goes to the bedroom, puts on pajamas, comes back out, starts sitting down. And she's like looking at me, and I'm like, what in the world? And she's like, are you going to eat or not? Like, what's the deal? And I'm just fuming. I'm like, she can't even say thank you? And that kind of, like, I had that the whole night. I was just so mad. And then it was almost like there's a few times in my life where God has spoken to me, like, audibly. And God said, you doofus. You did not do that for her. You did that for you. You wanted the response. You didn't want her heart. When you love your wife out of reverence for her, I guarantee you, you'll be disappointed. But if you love your, your wife out of reverence for God, God, there's nothing I could ever do to repay you. You don't owe me anything, so I'm going to love her. The, the account never gets balanced. You always keep loving because you can never measure up to what God has given you. And there's no power play back and forth because you never equal up to God and his love for you. Love your wife out of reverence for Christ so that you have the, the, the endurance to keep going when she doesn't say thank you, when she doesn't respond. Because you are in a unique position to love her like nobody else. Love her for what God has done for you and say, Lord, help me to love this woman well. And then there's a description that says, love, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He laid his life down for us, for, so, for the church. So you wash her with the word and you, you serve her sacrificially. Meaning like you don't come first. Right? All of you hunters and guys with hobbies, like that doesn't become before her. Like I don't make time for you after this. No, you come first. 
I serve you sacrificially. I'm going to wash you with the word, meaning I lead our family spiritually. That, that we will be in worship and we will be engaged in the life of the church. And prayer and scripture and integrity will be the foundation of our home. That I take her by the hand and I pray with her, not because she asked me to, but because I know it is the foundation of our relationship together in Christ. That I make sure that scripture is read in our home. Right? Like most of our wives like love to decorate the house. Make sure that scripture is embedded in every place of your home. Take some responsibility to say, whatever, however we decorate, we need to make sure that God's word is visible in our home. Wash her, pursue her, because Christ pursued us even when we were running away. You know, some of us, we get frustrated and we, we kind of give up because she won't respond to our pursuit. Think about your life. What if Jesus had said, you know what, I'm done. He, he's just not responding. I, 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 I can't chase him anymore. That's not what he did. He ran you down and he captured your heart. And when he captured your heart, you know what he didn't do? He didn't be like, whew, all right, case closed, accomplish that, move on with my next thing. No, he keeps chasing your heart. And many of us, after we captured her heart and we got married, we quit chasing her. Maybe one of the most godly things that some of, it will, some, uh, some of us will do today is you'll make a plan to take your wife on a date this week and pursue her heart again. Have courage to pursue her. This is what it means to lay your life down, to put her first, to lift her up. How do I lift her up so that she can know your love, God, more clearly?